can you please introduce yourself and describe what you do? Good morning. My name is Hans-Ulrich Obrist. I'm co-director of the Serpentine Galleries, curator and writer, and we're here in Miami, uh, and this is a conversation. And um, you often talk about your role as the person to help artists um, realize their, their fondest projects. What, what, for you, recently has been the most exciting thing you helped to make happen? In a way, I think this idea of realizing uh, unrealized artist projects begins with the very beginning. When I was a teenager, I met the artist Fischli Weiss in Switzerland. They were making this film about uh, the way things go, about the chain reaction, and making this studio visit triggered a chain reaction in my life. Ever since, I've met artists and have you know conversations with artists. And Fischli Weiss, uh, the very first visit I made with them, they said I should visit the Italian artist Alighiero Boetti in Rome. So we went on a school trip, actually, the same month, and so I sort of escaped the school trip and went to the studio of uh, Alighiero Boetti, the late Italian visionary. And uh, the very moment I arrived in his studio, Boetti tried to kind of figure out what I was doing. It was obviously too early for me in my life to kind of define exactly what I what I was doing because I was 17. But I told him I wanted to work with artists and somehow be useful. Um, and he immediately said, you know, in order to be useful, one should not squeeze artist practices into sort of existing formats, but one should in a way actually try to um, enable projects artists want to do. And he also um, immediately came to this point that actually artists are always invited to do the same things. Very few sort of types of projects. There are the biennales, there are art fairs, there are obviously also gallery shows, museum shows, group shows, solo shows. And Boetti said that's all wonderful, but he had many, many other things which somehow fall between the cracks, which don't enter any of these boxes. And he sort of was his advice for me to sort of really ask artists about what they really would like to do. What are projects which have been too big to be realized or too small to be realized? Or what are you know projects which maybe have been censored? Or as Doris Lessing always told me, there are also the projects which are self-censored. I think we all have projects which we haven't dared to do or haven't yet dared to do. And so ever since, I kind of tried to um, enable, uh, facilitate and make such uh, unrealized uh, projects happen. And yet at the same time also, of course, archive unrealized uh, artist projects, uh, which are doing with the agency of unrealized projects um, on EFLUX. And it's basically uh, an ever-growing archive where we uh, make public and make accessible these unrealized projects and through the you know publication of them, try to make them happen. It's interesting that actually we know very little about artists and poets and, and, and novelists and scientists unrealized projects. I think we know a lot about architects unrealized projects as they publish them and very often actually produce reality by publishing the unrealized. But about most other practices, we know very little. And this is really why I'm archiving them. And concerning your question, I mean, most recently, um, which uh, project, uh, I mean, one example is uh, we realized these rocks on top of another rock with Julia Payton-Johns and Jochen Waltz. Uh, we invited Fischli Weiss uh, to actually realize this culture in London, which was their unrealized project to do these two gigantic rocks, one top of another rock. And they've been in uh, front of the Serpentine Gallery for 18 months. Um, and it's basically uh, uh, been uh, the last project Fischli Weiss realized together uh, because before, just before David Weiss died, and it's uh, in, in a way uh, a very important work for them. So that's you know one example of realizing uh, public artworks. But of course, there is also exhibitions. There is books. There are many different ways of how one can make uh, you know unrealized reality sort of happen. Since um, we're talking about Fishley Weiss quite a bit, it the the rumor is that you um, I mean it's not rumor. You've said that you when you were sixteen you you went to their studio. Um, 
And just as a as a like moment of interest, you're 16 years old, and you what, what did you do? Did you just pick up the phone and say I'm coming over? How did you? Was it just blind ambition? And um, I mean, there seems to be no fear there. Lots of people of that age would say, Oh, I'm not going to call an artist and go over to the studio. How did how did that all happen? I think it had to do with some uh, yeah, strong form of maybe curiosity. And also, I had already visited exhibitions nonstop ever since I'm 12, 13, and growing up in Switzerland. It's a very, very dense landscape of museums. I'm very near where I grew up um, in the eastern part of Switzerland. There was this monastery library in St. Gallen, where were these amazing medieval books where my parents would take me every now and then. And that was somehow the first museum, I would say, the first archive I visited. And looking at these medieval books, it's like a time machine. Was was hugely inspiring for me as a child. And then, um, obviously, near again near my, my hometown, there was you know Winterthur, the, muse the amazing museum there. And then from there, I went to Zurich and then to Bern and to Basel, Geneva. I mean, Switzerland is full of all of these museums. And I would just go there whenever you know the free afternoons at school. I would go and visit uh, and visit museum. And then I, when I was somehow fourteen, I encountered the work of Giacometti because the Kunsthaus Zurich has many works by Giacometti and these very, as Franz West called them, these long you know, thin figures uh, Giacometti made and I was somehow magnetically attracted and went to see them again and again and that's the moment really, you know, it then became an obsession maybe with art and I started to look more and more and then I saw a show of Fischli Weiss in Basel uh, when I was 16 and I felt uh, a great sense of urgency to meet the artist and I just rang them up and, and, and made a studio visit and uh, when I arrived it was an afternoon, they, they actually a quiet afternoon, just to say, and they were actually working on the way things go. They were working on this uh, amazing film where the equilibrium sort of photographies started to go into motion. They were set into motion and they would collapse and trigger a next, you know, constellation. It was like an endless chain reaction. And uh, that's what they were filming. And uh, there was foam and it was a, a chain reaction in the, in the studio. And it's really, I was thinking I was sort of born in Zurich in May 68 and I was born a second time in Zurich in May 85 in the studio of Fischli Weiss. It was somehow the day I decided I wanted to work with art and wanted to work with artists. That's a, it's obviously, it was a very brave thing to do and you don't see it that way. You just see it as sort of being in, in intrinsic to, to what you do. Um, and, and following on from that, I, I'd like to just talk a little bit about um, what you think the, the point of an exhibition is. In their famous anthology, um, Sandy Nairn and, and Ressa Greenberg talk about that exhibitions are the medium through which art becomes known. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think exhibitions are many things. I mean, they have a limited lifespan. Um, and it's interesting if you think about the importance exhibition gained in the in the 20th century. It's something uh, Richard Hamilton always pointed out that he says in a way from Duchamp onwards, uh, the exhibition um, was more than just a bring together of works, but artists started to think the exhibition as a as a medium, and, and not only that, but also invent new forms of display feature. And, and, and that already started earlier. If we go back, I mean, Courbet in the 19th century decided to set up his own pavilion, uh, his own, own kind of, you know, sort of counter salon, his own um, artist-run space. We can say the artist-run space logic basically started with Courbet. Uh, and uh, that's something which um, I think is very fascinating, has become more and more important in the 20th century. And so obviously, by the exhibition becoming more important, uh, also sort of changed the role of the curator. The curator no, not only as someone who installs work and you know preserves work in a museum, but the curator also who helps the artist to uh, enables you know such exhibitions to um, 
to happen. I think the exhibitions are also a laboratory. They're a, a great place, you know, for artists to experiment in, in public. It's not only about making the work visible, of making the work public, but it's also about experimenting how the work is, is, uh, is shown. And there's a great history of experimental exhibition makings of artists and curators, um, which in a, in a big way, you know, is forgotten because I think it's important to say that the, uh, um, that the uh, exhibition, exhibitions are not collected. They are very rarely collected. They're kind of, artworks are collected, but exhibitions are very often transient phenomenons. They, there is the catalog, there is photography, of course, of exhibitions, there is the memory of those who saw it. And I think that's why it's very, very important to kind of uh, develop a history of these exhibitions, which I sort of try to do with the brief history of curating by somehow getting first-hand accounts of all these, you know, experimental moments of, uh, of exhibitions in the uh, in the 20th century. And I think, you know, if we invent the, the future, it's very often with fragments from the past. So I think this moment of memory, or as Eric Hobsbawm would have called it, sort of protesting against forgetting is, uh, is very, very uh, important. So exhibitions in this sense, I think it's also interesting there can be exhibitions in time and there can be exhibitions in space. And obviously we know much more about the exhibitions in, in space, in, in spaces. But I think there is a very interesting history also of artists experimenting with exhibitions and time and kind of time-based aspect of, um, of exhibitions. Well, it seems like that's something you, you fight against um, often, right? Is to, to do shows in unexpected contexts. So the show you did in your kitchen, um, most famously, I suppose. But then you also um, fight against the sort of traditional museum experience. And you've, you've actually said that it's like being on a ski piece go left, go right, and you're just told what to do in a museum. Um, why why or, or how then do you negotiate having been at the Serpentine for so long? Yeah, in a way, the idea always, of course, of exhibitions is the one of a conversation with artists, and that uh, has always been the case. It's true for you know my um, solo exhibitions, which I curate, but it's also true for group shows. So, for example, when we did Cities on the Move with Huhan Ru, or when we did um, exhibitions like uh, at the Serpentine, the Indian Highway with Julia Peyton-Jones and Gunnar Kwaran. Uh, you know, these are always group shows which happen in a very, very strong dialogue with, uh, with artists. I would say that in the 90s, my practice has been mostly a, a freelance curator. So I was traveling 300 days a year or more and was really, in a way, curating exhibitions um, in many, many different places. Uh, and then at a certain moment, the uh, idea was to kind of, you know, maybe focus more on one place. So in 2000, I became curator at the Musée d'Art Moderne, the La Ville de Paris, the City Museum, where I was already before uh, the migratory curator. So before my role was to migrate all the time. But then after 2000, it was really this idea of going more into depth and kind of doing uh, exhibitions. And in 2006, um, start to work as the co-director of the Serpentine Galleries alongside the director, Julia Payton-Jones. And ever since, you know, we've developed the programs together. And I think it involves exhibitions, but of course also public programs. It involves the marathons. Um, Julia came up with this idea in uh, 2000 of the uh, pavilion. So she uh, invented a sort of a new um, uh, yeah, format, one can say, for how an art institution can show architecture, how actually architecture can be produced and how we can somehow see architecture uh, not in an exhibition with models, but in a one-to-one -one way by actually building it, by becoming a client for, for architecture. And that's uh, what's happening on this small piece of lawn every summer in front of the Serpentine. And I came up with this format of the marathons, which are kind of... Um, knowledge uh, producing, uh, but also in a way performative events of 48 hours where following a topic uh, we bring together artists, scientists, architects and in a way it is a group show where artists are given you know time and, and, uh, and not space uh, and it's also a sketch maybe for something 
which I think is very urgent for the 21st century. I think in a way there is still this idea or there is this idea that we have very segregated fields very often uh, of, of knowledge, uh, segregated you know, industries, segregated research domains, all kinds of forms of segregation. And this idea of actually going beyond the fear of pooling knowledge and bringing all the disciplines together has always been a very uh, important part of my work. And the marathons try to be a sketch for that. They try to be a sketch for something which I think is really missing today, which is a kind of a, maybe a Black Mountain College. I mean, if you think about this moment of the Black Mountain College, where all the different disciplines, poetry, art, music, uh, architecture, everything was, you know, came together and to kind of create such a moment for our time has always been uh, kind of one of the main aims, I think, in terms of, uh, of curating for, for me. And then I think another thing which is important besides that is, of course, solo shows. I think in a way, what started after 2000 and continues to be very important, I think, in, in my curatorial practice are, are the solo shows, because I think in a way I realized after maybe about 10, 15 years in the art world that uh, around 2000, that the maybe the deepest way of working with an artist is actually by developing, you know, a bigger solo project, a sort of a monographic show, a survey of the practice and together with the artist invent that and kind of invent, come, to come up with, you know, new formats of what such a solo show can be. And that's definitely, you know, a main part also of, uh, you know, the work we're doing at, uh, at the Serpentine Galleries now in the two buildings, in the Serpentine Gallery and the Serpentine Sackler Gallery. The shows are very often and always actually connected. You know, there is the bridge between. So it's kind of something where one can walk and then experience these two exhibitions and develop uh, a link. And that, I think, in a way, you know, involves, I think curating involves many different sort of also working with not only many different disciplines, but also many different generations of artists. Obviously, has always to do, and that has been, I think, from the beginning, this idea of working with artists at the beginning of their trajectory, helping, enabling their kind of, you know, them becoming visible and, and uh, giving them an opportunity at the very beginning of the trajectories. But it also involves working with artists who have worked for many decades and, you know, reassessing the practice. Uh, and very often, again, as Eric would say, you know, protesting against forgetting, bringing also maybe artists back to visibility who haven't been seen a lot. So as of lately, uh, you know, to, to give an example, Marisa Mertz, the uh, visionary Italian artist, has never really been a show of hers in the UK. She has more than 60 years of extraordinary, you know, work. And to do such exhibitions is as important as to show younger uh, emerging artists. Do you ever then um, worry about in, in, in everything that you've done, your um, power as a maker of meaning? I mean, Art Review has named you one of the most powerful people in art several times. Does it, does it worry you that you, um, or, or rather, how do you position yourself in um, regards to making meaning? How do you, yeah, how do you position yourself? Yeah, I think the, the role of the curator, J.G. Ballard once told me that he thinks the curator is a, a junction maker which I think is a very good definition because, I mean, you know, historically, the curator brought objects together and that still remains one possible function. You know, the curator in an exhibition installs works of art. So that means junction making between art objects. But it's obviously not only that. It's also junctions between, you know, objects, quasi-objects and non-objects because we have a long history of dematerialization of art, of artists working with non-objects, of artists working with live art. Um, with performance, all of that, you know, is part of 21st century curating. So it's making junctions between objects, non-objects, quasi-objects, or as Timothy Martin would say, hyper-objects. These, all these things matter. Then I think, in a way, the role of the curator is also the one of an enabler, of a catalyst. Um, and I think, you know, the power is, 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 is definitely always with art. I think, in a way, art is the center. Artists are the center of the art world. And that's, for me, from the very beginning, you know, starting these conversations and come back to what Boeti said. You know, he basically said, 
we need to basically listen to what artists want to do, what our artists project. I think in a way, I think what I was fascinated as a teenager, and I've been fascinated ever since, is this, you know, also long durational dimension of art. Because if we now look at uh, what happened in uh, previous century, uh, it's mainly the artists whose work and through their work we, we can, you know, somehow experience these times. And I think in a way that will be the same for our time. Our time will be remembered, you know, through the artists. And I think the role of the curator is, is to enable the artist, is to be, is what I, you know, experienced in my very first studio visit as a teenager, you know, to be useful to art. So I don't think that it's a question of, you know, um, of power of, um, uh, of curating. The power is always with art and, and curating has to be useful. I think curating is about, um, uh, yeah, curating. If we kind of go back to that, form follows function or function follows form. I think in a way, you know, we, I always believe that curating follows art. I would be very, um, uh, I would be very against this idea that art follows curating and that, you know, curating sets the agenda, because I think there is always a danger in that of curating, instrumentalizing art, which is something, you know, I've always tried to avoid in my work. Is that why then you put together Do It, the, the exhibition rule book? Yeah, Do It uh, came um, again out of conversations with, with artists indeed, and that was um, a conversation I had with Christian Boltanski and uh, Bertrand Lavier, two French artists, when I had to, when I had moved to Paris. I got a grant at the Cartier Foundation, and that's um, was a very important moment in 91 because uh, basically I could never leave uh, Switzerland for longer, to, sort of a longer time because I, I could only take night trains. I could really afford to take hotels. So I got these train tickets and I would travel to Europe for one, two, three months and just every night take a night train and get to the next city. So the night train was kind of my my home or office or studio or something like that. And uh, it's through this grant at the Cartier Foundation in 1991 that for the first time I could actually leave Switzerland for for longer and could could somehow spend three three months in Paris and uh, uh, during that time I basically had many conversations with artists and, and, and of course with architects and curators and above all these long conversations with Bertrand Lavier and, and uh, Christian Boltanski where we discussed this idea of how art travels over time and we discussed this idea that exhibitions have a limited lifespan we, we gather objects we gather installations and then they are dismantled and they go back to the artists or they go to other exhibitions and all there is, there is the memory and there are some traces. So we discussed how it's happening in music and that in music you have a score, you have a musical score and that that musical score can actually be performed, so as to say, it can be, uh, um, yeah, it can be, can be performed again and again and also much later, centuries later. And so we were wondering in this conversation what that would mean in relation to art. And both Boltanski and Lavier said, you know, they're doing installations and actually these installations involve a lot of scoring. It involves a lot of, um, uh, basically uh, instructions and how these installations can actually be realized also if the artist isn't there um, and uh, and they were both saying there has you know been a lot of discussion about instructions in art but there never has really been a big big group show where many many artists would contribute an instruction and then the exhibition could be uh, could be realized so I started to make research I was completely mesmerized by this conversation went to the library, was obviously pre-Google, um, and started to read many books about instruction art. I came across Yoko Ono's book, The Grapefruit Book. Uh, Yoko very early on made an entire exhibition, a, a big solo show, made only out of these instructions of these cars. Uh, I also discovered uh, Alison Knowles, another amazing Fluxus artist, and Alison had made this, what she called, open scars, make a salad, so everybody who makes a salad, you know, makes the piece. Uh, it was a small little booklet by something else press. And then I got back to Boltanski and Lavier and I said, you know, there would be artists in so many different generations. We spoke to Felix Gonzalez Torres, who worked always with instructions for his candy pieces, for his uh, stacks also. 
Um, and we suddenly thought, I mean, there is maybe substance to, to really do a, a group show. So we gathered 12 artists with their instructions, got them translated through AFAA into many languages, into, um, I think, 12 languages at the time, the 12 instructions, and then sent a little booklet all over the world. It was almost like a, how do you call it in English? Like a message in a bottle? Is it, is it that? A message? Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like a message in a bottle. Uh, we send out these hundreds of books with the many translations all over the world. And then little by little, um, realization started to pop up. We started to get photographs from different art schools and institutions who had realized the project. And uh, it's never stopped ever since. There have been basically more than, um, uh, I think, 200 realizations of the ones we know. And then there are obviously many exhibitions we wouldn't maybe even not know about it, of people who just did it. And uh, uh, obviously what also happened is that through this idea that an exhibition can evolve over time, it's a learning system. And I always believe in this idea that curating is about learning. I never believe, I've always, you know, I thought it was very interesting to sort of question this authority um, of curating. And, and I think it's sometimes very fascinating. I think one can speak to almost any practitioner in art, science, you know, literature, music, and they all would always say that, that can be, it can be very fascinating if an inspiration comes from another field. I mean, Marcel Duchamp always talked about this idea that he suddenly got so inspired by reading the scientist uh, Poincaré. And for me, it was really the case with urbanism, because when I started to be very interested in urbanism, I started to read a lot of uh, Cedric Price. I started to read a lot of Jonah Friedman. I started to read these urbanists who started to question in the 50s, in the late 50s, the master plan. I mean, Cedric talked about the no plan. So he questioned this idea that the urbanist would uh, develop a top-down master plan for a city. Um, and Jonah would say the same thing. He would say, how can we ever predict how people move in a city? And it should be a sort of a bottom-up thing, not a top-down thing. And, and uh, I thought this is really, really fascinating that in, in urbanism, there has been 50, 60 years of discussion about questioning the master plan. But in curating, it's never been really questioned. In curating, it was always the top-down decision of the curator. The curator made the, the checklist. The curator said, that's in and that's out. So for me, it became very interesting learning from urbanism, you know, questioning this authority of the curator. And do it was the kind of first chapter in that. I and mean, it's been going on ever since. It's something I'm still very fascinated by. And, and we do it, we, we, we questioned, of course, this, uh, you know, uh, closeness of exhibition. It's a very open-ended, inclusive process. And also... This idea that we would know at the beginning what, you know, instruction art is, because we realized the model show traveled to Asia, it went to, to, to Thailand quite at the beginning, uh, it went to China. We learned a lot, you know, about the history of instruction art in these different Asian countries. Then the exhibition started to tour through Latin America, and we suddenly also realized that there is a long, long history, um, for example, in Brazil with Otithika, Elia Otithika, with Ligia Clark, with Ligia Pape, whom I visited, Ligia Pape told me this whole Brazilian art history, you know, of instruction art. So that suddenly became part of the project. The same in Mexico, where the show went to Mexico. So in this sense, it became a learning project, taking more and more into account the true polyphony of art centers in the world, and uh, the idea that it's a really, there's a global history of, you know, of course, of, of conceptualism, but also a global history of instruction art. And uh, we've got about, I think, 400 instructions now, 450 from artists on all continents. And uh, I would say the project is still in early stages. And there are moments when it's realized. We then did a version with ICI, the Independent Curator and Corporate. And that means that it traveled also through many, many universities. It's a project which works really, really well in a, you know, in a university context. And uh, yeah, it has only just begun. I think what's what's so amazing about that project is the sort of the fine balance between the control of putting together a volume like that and then literally walking away from it because we all know what happens when you give someone instructions and you just tell them to do it they they interpret it in their own way so your analogy to to music is a is totally right you know a, a composer can't control how 
um, heavy the violin bow is on the strings. Um, and so it's just lovely to, to have this living project that, that does keep going and going. What interests, just now, when you were talking about it, what interests me most was that there's a, that happened before Google, right? So before the internet had really taken off um, at all in any way. And now you have, and you've, you've talked about this to, to um, some extent, uh, the sort of rise of online curators. Um, and I don't know that I like necessarily want you to go into that debate, but I'd love you to talk about the, the project you have on Instagram, um, which is, to me, this carefully considered and um, curated experience of handwriting. And I'd just love to hear yeah, your thoughts on that. Yeah, so basically, the, the, it's a very interesting question. I think the question of uh, it raises, of course, the issue of also how the internet changed the practice of curating, changed my practice of curating, changed curating in general. And maybe I can address it more generally and then go into some examples of which the, the Instagram project. Is that okay? Yes, please. Yeah, so I think in a way, the internet has definitely changed the way, the way I work. I think in a way, of course, it has changed the way to make research. Um, but also, I think it has uh, very much you know, changed the way of, uh, of curating. And I think in the most direct way, this becomes maybe apparent in the 89 plus project, which we started with Simon Caste in uh, 2012. And it's a project which looks at this amazing generation of artists who have emerged after 1989. It's uh, the generation of um, artists born, basically, um, the, uh, the moment when the Berlin Wall came down or after. Um, artists born after the internet was invented because Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet in uh, 1989. And I always liked this idea that it actually was called Inquire at the beginning and that Tim Berners-Lee sort of connected it to this idea of an inquiry. And I think we should never lose that dimension, which he had built in at the very beginning into his idea of the internet, his idea of it being a research tool. No, And um, yeah, 89, the year of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the, the year also of Tiananmen Square. 89 also, not only the invention through Tim Berners-Lee of the internet, but also actually uh, the year of um, uh, the invention of GPS. Um, so with Simon, we started this project to actually make a cartography of artists born in 89 and uh, younger. And it was inspired by Ryan Trekartin, who once told us that he really looks forward to discovering and seeing this extraordinary generation of artists born in the 1990s, who now come to age and who become visible. Um, so we started to build up a database, which is open to everyone to actually submit work. And we already have more than 5,500 artists from all over the world who submitted work. And that obviously has changed completely the way for us of making research, because we see this, the daily submissions every morning, which come in, uh, 10, 20 submissions, you know, coming in. Um, at the same time, uh, we can see the different patterns evolving. So, for example, we realized after, I would say, already a couple of weeks in 2012, 2013, that there was an astonishing uh, resurrection, you know, of the, or maybe resurrection is the wrong word, but there's an astonishing reconnection of the art world to poetry, how many artists actually are also poets or collaborate with poets, which then became our first exhibition, which we did uh, with the Luma Foundation. So the, basically the idea of it being, you know, a poetry, a poetry show. And obviously we have this database and this database is in this sense, it doesn't replace actual meetings. It doesn't replace the practice of making studio visits, which I've always done and that continues, but it is an additional 
component, which is a very important component for us to, you know, to discover work and see work, which otherwise we wouldn't see. And uh, I think this sort of um, uh, research base uh, led also to this project where we actually, you know, we see it as a, similarly to do it, we see 89 plus is a 10, 20 years project, which uh, will continue to evolve. We have residencies and, and that's important because uh, we felt from the very beginning, we wanted to kind of, you know, support these new emerging generations of, of artists by actually, uh, putting into place residencies also in unexpected context. And because for me, it was so important when I was 23 to have this Cartier residency, which allowed me to, to basically do all the work I've done ever since. And so we felt it's great to give this opportunity to practitioners, artists, curators, at the very beginning of their uh, trajectory. Then there are, of course, exhibitions. There was the 89 plus marathon at the supper time, which was the first kind of gathering of many, many of these practitioners where we also wanted to, them to meet each other. So that was another kind of moment in that, that it's an ongoing project, which again, you know, is in its early, is in its early stages, but which clearly uh, reflects, of course, on the impact the uh, internet has, digital technologies has on these practices. And, and this is the first generation of artists who grew up you know, with the internet, and uh, it would be very, very interesting to see that, you know, the impact this, uh, this has, and it clearly does have an impact on our own curatorial methodology. I was then always wondering, you know, what would be the first exhibition I would curate online, and I've always done these projects after Do It also, which are kind of roundabout calls, where, for example, out of a conversation with Albert Hoffman, the inventor of uh, LSD, who drew on a paper napkin when we spoke in a cafe, the formula of, uh, of LSD, and uh, I showed it to many artists who all were prompted by it to email me their own formula. Um, so we did formulas for the 21st century. After that, maps for the 21st century, inspired, of course, by digital maps and by this idea how digital technology actually changes cartography with real-time maps. So we invited many artists and other practitioners to do maps, and that became, you know, um, a book also and, and the marathon. Uh, but still also, you know, it did not happen as an online exhibition. And I was always wondering, how to start, I didn't know where to start. And then someone else made the decision for me because I was making a studio visit. So again, you know, it started with an artist. I was making a studio visit in LA with Ryan Tricartin and having breakfast there with uh, Ryan and uh, the writer and critic Kevin McGarry. And Ryan, all of a sudden, very unexpectedly, took my iPhone and downloaded the app for Instagram. And then before I even realized what had happened, made a photograph of me holding the iPhone and posted uh, actually on his Instagram to all his followers that I had joined Instagram. And all of a sudden I had all these followers and had not posted a single image. So I was walking aimlessly in Ryan's studio and house trying to find desperately a, um, a thing I could photograph. And all of a sudden I was completely captivated by his calendar because he has this amazing big calendar for the year. Well, with a felt pin, with a felt pen, is that the word in English? Yeah, with a felt pen, he kind of overdraws the days which are gone and sort of, it's like a palimpsest. It's incredible. It's an incredible drawing. Um, and I thought it was fascinating an artist who works so much with digital technology to see these, you know, traces of the hand and this felt pen and very low tech things. So I made a photograph and I posted it, but I still didn't know what exactly would be my project. And I then, so I randomly took different photographs. I documented some studio visits. I had artists do special projects when I would have dinner with them and they would, you know, make a photograph of a specific object. And it still somehow went in all directions. And then a month later, I was on Christmas vacation with uh, Ete Latnan, the um, amazing poet and artist who um, who is based in France. And we were in Normandy. And Etel, who is now in her late 80s, is one of the most extraordinary uh, writers and poets of, of our time. Um, and uh, has developed ever since, you know, she started in Beirut 
to do political journalism, uh, also her own literature, her plays. She has done with uh, Sid Marie Rose, one of the great political books of our time about the civil war in Lebanon, a book which is very urgent to read today in the context of all the wars happening in the world. It's Sid Marie Rose by Etel Adnan. She has, of course, developed, you know, amazing poems, as Mahmoud Darwish once said, Etel in all the 88 years of her life has never written a bad line, but then started also to do these amazing little paintings and also uh, these unfoldable, foldable sort of Japanese scrolls where she brings together poetry and, and, and painting. Uh, she does public art, always wanted to be an architect, uh, develops her tapestries. In this sense, it's almost like, you know, Sonia Delaunay or, or even also the Bauhaus or even, you know, in Morris, it is this idea of reaching out into society with her art, through her carpets, through her tapestries, through her textiles, through her public art. And so we had a very, very feverish, intense conversation with Etel and her partner Simon Fatal, the great artist and publisher. And we walked in the, in the rain and it became, it rained more and more. Um, was, uh, a sort of a storm in Normandy. So we, uh, we, we tried to find protection in a cafe and, uh, I started to, to check my emails and send some SMS and, uh, Etel, uh, basically took a pen and uh, on, on a piece of paper started to write the poem. And I just thought it was the most beautiful thing I had seen in years, you know, to see how extremely concentrated in her very beautiful handwriting write this poem. And then it was almost like a flashback. I suddenly remembered Ryan's studio and I remembered his calendar with his handwritten kind of palimpsest. Um, I had remembered a text I read a few weeks earlier by Umberto Eco, where he lamented that actually teenagers no longer handwrite, that handwriting in the digital era disappears and we've got to do something about it. I sort of remember that I always thought I should use Instagram, you know, with a real project, not, you know, the opposite of it being a vanity project, sort of, uh, uh, and also, you know, to somehow that it really has a cause, it has a, maybe the word is urgency, I wanted to find something which was urgent. Uh, and I suddenly felt it's incredibly urgent that we, you know, somehow celebrate handwriting and rather than to complain, uh, as Eko did in his text, that actually handwriting disappears, to do something about it and start to celebrate it in digital media to make it, to bring it back in a way. So um, I posted Etel's poem and ever since, uh, every day when I meet artists and, and architects and scientists and poets, I ask them to write a sentence or a few sentences in their handwriting um, and post those uh, post those messages. So I don't know if it's a, it's a group show, it maybe is. I mean, when I was a student, I had a little nano museum, which I found actually through Hans-Peter Feldman, the artist, because he in the 80s and uh, early 90s had this shop in in, uh, in Düsseldorf, uh, an artist-run shop, so as to say. And in this shop, I found a little frame, a picture frame of two by three inches. Uh, and I declared this little frame my own portable museum, the nano museum. The great thing is that the museum went with me wherever I met, you know, wherever I went. I would show it to all my friends and also to strangers, wherever I would be. Uh, and uh, it sort of lasted for about three years until, very sadly, Douglas Gordon lost the museum in a pub in Glasgow. Um, <laughs> it has never been seen ever since. So this idea was actually a tragic death uh, of the museum. And so whenever, you know, when I had the iPhone for the first time and looking at the little screen, I was actually kind of thinking it is kind of a portable museum. And it, almost, it reminded me of this nano museum in a way. Uh, so we can obviously think of, uh, you know, Instagram as a kind of a new form of a nano museum. Yet at the same time, I also use it through the handwriting project, of course, as a movement, but I use it also to make a book because, of course, at the end, all of these uh, very diverse handwriting. This is fascinating. I mean, you all, everybody who will watch this, you know, this, this video clip, everybody who is here in the room has a different handwriting. Two people on this planet never have the same handwriting. It's all about this diversity to be celebrated. And so in a way, you know, um, um, it's in this sense an endless project because I think, 
um, uh, I, I probably, you know, start too soon to do a second or third kind of, you know, project parallel to it. But I think the handwriting project will continue forever. But there will at a certain moment be a book. Uh, because for me, books are still relevant. They're even more relevant now than they were before the digital age. Um, because I think now it becomes very, very significant, not just to get the information out and printed because this, you know, can easily be downloaded and can happen on an iPad. We can read a book. But I think it's about the object. It's about, in this sense, it's about this idea that the book can almost be a portable exhibition. And that's why I think with books, it's so important to involve artists in all dimensions of it. And I'm very fascinated, you know, in photography, of course, for many photographers, it's something Helen Levitt once told me. She said, you know, her books are her ultimate exhibitions. Uh, uh, Cartier Bresson told me the same. He says, you know, sometimes he puts a picture on the wall, but the ultimate exhibitions are these books he designs. And Helen Levitt said the same, the books she designs. And I think the same thing is true for many artists, conceptual artists like Lawrence Wiener, you know, his books are artworks. They're a part of a museum. And so I think for me, in terms of curating, curating books has always been a very, very important part and continues to be, you know, in the, in the digital age. So we're working on this book on the, um, on the handwriting. And again, you know, it's only just begun. Would you ever do a physical exhibition of it or does it just exist for you in, in books and online? I don't know yet exactly how it can materialize in an exhibition. I think for the moment, the idea is that it sits on, you know, in on, on Instagram and it will suddenly become a book. Uh, Douglas Copeland the other day had this idea of these gigantic post-its. So he made a one meter by one meter post-it, which said OMG. Uh, and that obviously raised the exhibition, you know, could there be kind of XL post-its, which then could become an exhibition. But I haven't yet made up my mind. And, and what about, this is a, a similar question, but your, your now interviews for me felt like a, a very interesting, um, thing. I totally understand why you're doing them. It's to, to, to make a record and a document of, of artists and artists thought. But for someone who's so visual, which you obviously are, you've isolated sound from, from visuals, right? You're, you didn't decide to do it as a video piece. Um, why did you make that decision? Yeah, actually, the sort of my conversation started, of course, at the very beginning, because I always had conversations with, with artists, but at the beginning, I didn't record them. So all the conversations between 86, 87, when I made my first studio visits, so the, you know, the studio visit with Fish Levi's. So, um, let's start that again. Um, so the question about the now, you mean about the recordings, the now interviews? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so basically, um, when I made my studio visit with Fish Levi's in, in 87, um, and ever since, you know, I had conversations with artists, but unfortunately these first conversations were not recorded, so they're lost. And it's only at the beginning of the 90s, really, that I started to realize that somehow, uh, and it didn't, wasn't really because of wanting to publish them in the first place. It was more because I realized that I had gaps in my memory and I wanted to go back to certain conversations. That I sort of felt it's a pity not to have a recording. So I started to make audio recordings of my conversations. And uh, it was Rosemarie Trockel, the German artist, she always said, um, how important it would be that in a way we, there would be a trace and particularly not only of artists of, I, I meet of my own generation and contemporaries sort of living and working now, but she said I should really go and see very old people. She encouraged me to go se to see and see centenaries. It's extraordinary if you have a centenary whose eyes saw an entire century. Um, and so out of this grew then the idea to go and see, you know, practitioners like Helen Levitt or Natalie Sarot. Uh, uh, Katsuo Ono, the great pioneer of, you know, of Buddha dance, who were all in the late 90s or early 100s, became a whole, you know, other series. But still, you know, most of these were actually sound, uh, were sound recordings. Uh, and in a way, 
it was really thanks to Jonas Mekas that around 93, I then started to film the interviews because Jonas was sitting in a cafe in Paris with Jonas Mekas, who obviously has one of the greatest archives and I've always admired films he made of such pioneering artists as Hans Richter. And, and, uh, and in a way, Jonas said he just doesn't understand why I would only record his voice. He said, it's so simple now, there are these small digital cameras and it wouldn't even be noticed, it would, you know, wouldn't even be heavy to carry. Um, and because he obviously had a big camera and he said he would understand, he explained to him that that wouldn't work for me because of, in a way, um, I would never be able to set it up because it happened very sort of spontaneous, these conversations. And then after this meeting with Jonas, I went immediately and bought one of these small digital cameras with the mini DV cassettes, which had just started to be on the market at that time. And ever since, you know, I've recorded actually most of these conversations also as, as, uh, as films. It's just that, that most of them haven't really been, uh, you know, released. And I've so far published the conversations mostly as books and as texts. But, uh, I'm still thinking, you know, what to do with these so far more than 2000 hours of, uh, of film. And I think the most interesting way, I mean, we, sort of figured it out when we worked with the students at the University in Karlsruhe will actually be to work with digital, sort of to, with digital tagging, no, to somehow tag them, tag all these hours, and that will obviously be an enormous work. We so far did it only for the footage of Cedric Price, and it's very wonderful because we can now search the archive of all the maybe 20 hours I have of the visionary Cedric Price talking about the Fun Palace, talking about new cities, talking about this, you know, resisting master plan, talking about new forms of, of architecture. Um, and we can basically uh, search the archive according to a topic. So we can put in umbrella and then we can immediately see him talk about his umbrella city, which is this wonderful idea that it rains a lot in England. So whenever it rains, one could push a button and umbrellas would go up in the street. So we wouldn't have to carry umbrellas anymore. And yet at the same time, there is a second scene in the conversation where his umbrella, and then suddenly Cedric opens an umbrella in his studio. It's a very surreal image because it didn't rain and we're inside. Uh, and then there is a third point where he talks again about umbrellas as an analogy to, you know, to urbanism. And of course, there are about 40 entries about him thinking about this new institution. I, I still think that, you know, his idea for a fun palace, um, together with John Littlewood, the, the theater, visionary, they together conceived, John and, and Cedric conceived of this fun palace idea as a um, uh, cultural institutions where all the um, disciplines would come together, um, an idea of it being still a harvest of the quiet eye, but in a way, really a place where we would go beyond the fear of pooling knowledge, a place where we could do radical experiments, you know, a place which hasn't been built and which I still think is very interesting to think about for the 21st century, what it would mean to actually build it, you know, of course, with the technology of now in a very different way than they thought. And they thought it through very much. I mean, they worked with technologists, they worked with composers. Um, and it's interesting to just push the button and see, you know, search for the 40 times Cedric mentions, you know, the fun palace. So if we think that all the 2,400 hours could be tagged, we could actually have all these different um, practitioners in my archive talk to each other. And that's the kind of, you know, future project. It's obviously, it's not only me talking to them or them talking to me, but it's a very, very big polyphony in a way. There's the, it makes me wonder though again like the the Instagram and handwriting project whether whether you would ever do an installation of it for for me when I listen to some of those interviews the the breath of the um, the speaker is so tied up in the work and I and I couldn't help thinking about Janet Cardiff's forty part motet you know where you walk into yeah. the installation and you are just struck by the humanity of every speaker and every singer and um, yeah, so I just wondered if it, it had ever occurred to you to maybe collaborate, like to, to make a, a sound piece or a sound installation where, where all of these interviews live. 
Yeah, definitely. And that's something which, again, you know, will happen. I'm not an artist, so I would only do this ever in collaboration with artists and architects. So, for example, the first step towards what you, what you describe actually happened with the Japanese architect Katsuo Sejima when she invited me to participate four years ago to her architecture biennale, which she curated in Venice. Um, and she had this idea to do the now interviews so that I would actually do an interview with every single architect who participated in her show. And that actually my interview project would become a kind of a, a portrait of the exhibition. So it's almost like it leads us back to the beginning and to your earlier question about exhibitions and how can we actually document an exhibition. We can document an exhibition by photographing it, by filming it, by talking to the artists and architects who participated. But Sejima felt that a nice way to document the exhibition would be to actually interview every single participant for, you know, about the exhibition, about what they did, and through this have a portrait of the exhibition in the space and do this the days leading up to the show so that actually the days the exhibition would open to the public, we would have this archive accessible. So I told Katsuo that, you know, I thought it was a great idea, it was something I had never thought of, um, but that it would only make sense if she, because I had no idea, of course, how to do the architecture of this space, if she would design it. So she, together with her colleague, Ryo Nishizawa, came up with a display. Uh, so them, Asana Architects, designed the space. Uh, and it's the only space they designed in the Architecture Biennale, because for the whole rest, they just invited architects to actually realize their, their visions their, and artists to realize their spaces. But that's the space they designed. And so they did these uh, amazing rabbit chairs, um, uh, white rabbit chairs, which would be uh, basically in front of monitors, of small monitors, and it would always be a one-to-one -one situation. So for each participant in the show, there was a monitor and a rabbit chair, and the visitors could actually sit there and have a one-to-one, -one, in a way, with these talking heads. So that was a first, was a very exciting experience for me, and for the first time, you know, I realized that it actually can become, a, as you say, you know, a space, uh, an exhibition. And then, of course, the other possibility is that this footage, you know, uh, unedited footage is used by artists. So, for example, we now looking into the footage I have of Ernest Mangoba, who is part of this centenary project, which uh, Rosemary Trockel encouraged me to do, and which I did, you know, in big parts for her because she didn't have the time to do it. Um, so uh, I went to visit Ernest Mankova, the then almost 100-year-old South African pioneer, one of the greatest uh, artists, you know, in the 20th century, who, who, who developed a very unique vocabulary of abstraction. He was part of the Cobra group with Asker Jan and, and Karel Appel. Um, and uh, his work is hugely influential on younger artists in all over, you know, of course, South Africa, but all over the world. And uh, he, he lived very, very sort of recluse, almost in a, in a retirement home towards the end of his life outside Paris. And uh, so I went to see him and have this video of two hours of him telling his story, telling his life and uh, his, uh, you know, uh, creations, his invention, the invention of his language, his, um, his exile, you know, uh, the, the, he, he's uh, basically his, his exile, him, he, him being forced to leave South Africa during apartheid, him going uh, abroad, him becoming a member of COBRA. I mean, it's an extraordinary long life. He told me the whole story and uh, this is just an unedited film and we now have an artist who will actually make this into a, uh, an art project and then, you know, develop a film out of it. And so we could imagine that all of these films, in a way, can be useful. So again, you know, it's about being a utility. I hope my work is a utility. Well, that's, um, that's amazing. And probably all the time we have uh, to, to sit with you. I'd only like to ask one more question, um, which is, ha have you ever made art? Did you ever paint as a child? Or has it always been about looking for you? No, it's always been about looking. I have never, I mean, I've, uh, I've written, um, basically, ever since my early kind of adolescence. And 
Uh, I've always written about uh, about about art, I, and I've never really made art. I mean, I'm doodling all the time, but that's not art. That's just sort of you know thinking by by doodling and and sketching and all of that. And I mean, you know, there are lots of different you know types of curators, and there are lots of different backgrounds curators have. There, are, of course, we should never forget that many artists are also curating. You know, many great exhibitions have been curated by artists themselves. If you think about the Dada Fair or the surrealist exhibitions by Duchamp. So, you know, great artists have actually, as a part of their work, also curated exhibitions. Then you have curators who are initially artists, but then decide to work as curators. You know, many great curators went through that trajectory. Um, and then you have uh, curators like me who never really worked as artists, who come from a very different angle. Uh, and, you know, in the brief history of curating, it's interesting to see that actually uh, there are curators who have a background in anthropology, you know, curators who have a background in in science, uh, curators who have a background in, 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 in literature. Of course, many curators have a background in art history. So, you know, so I think it's possible with all these different backgrounds. And for me, uh, I never worked as an artist. And for me, it was really always about this idea of, you know, as Gilbert and George once said, to be with art is, is all we ask.